Welcome to Simple Indeed, a podcast about the power of engaging our story to love fully. I'm your host, Wisteria Edwards, and I'm happy you're here. Let's get started. Welcome back to Simple and Deep. I'm your host, Wisteria Edwards, and today I have my friend Katie Eggie here, and she's going to be talking a little bit about childhood emotional neglect. So Katie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Wisteria. Absolutely. What I wanted to do is, is first off, just go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about you and how you got to where you are today working with this topic. Great. I'm Katie Eggie, and I am in private practice. It's called Connect Therapy Minnesota in Minnesota. And the way I got to studying childhood emotional neglect was through over the 10 years that I've worked as a therapist, I've noticed one common theme in all of my clients, regardless of what first brought them into therapy. And that was just a really big, enduring struggle with managing their emotions, even being able to connect to and name and identify their emotions, let alone just coping with them. So that was first and foremost, the number one thing that we had to address before we could even tackle other issues such as communication issues or trust issues in a marriage or work struggles or imposter syndrome, just low struggles, low self-esteem and struggles with making decisions. So that was such a big commonality in all of the hundreds of clients that I've had the privilege of working with that I started to dive deeper into what was this singular common denominator in all these people that I was meeting with of all different backgrounds, socioeconomic differences, cultural differences. And it was fascinating to realize that the emotional absence in terms of lack of connection with those emotions, lack of knowing what to do with them, or even what the function of emotions were, was really creating such difficulty and struggle in their life. And the problem even with that is that because there's such, there's not mainstream education in emotions and what healthy emotional development looks like and what it consists of, it's really difficult to then get a healthy sense of that. We typically will gain our education, our primary education source for emotions through our environment, namely our parents. And then our society really reinforces that. However, oftentimes our parents didn't get this themselves, not from any fault of their own, but more so it's a societal systemic issue. So it just gets passed down all these false beliefs, false lack or inaccurate information about emotions just continually gets passed down from generation to generation, leading to millions of children growing up with really inaccurate information about emotions, struggles, even coping, inability to even know what or why we have these emotions. So that is why I am now primarily focusing on childhood emotional neglect and ways to actually concretely work to foster healthy emotional development. Ah, That is just like one of my favorite topics, especially because with the work that I've been doing with Fred Rogers, everybody knows that is that was his primary focus was big feelings. He called that important talk. And I think that often, even thinking about Fred as a whole, his parents told him it was not okay to cry. And so that really became something that he had to stuff 
And those kind of emotions actually make us sick over time. And I liked that you talked about it being a systemic issue because I do believe that we are an emotional, emotionally depleted and we have a lot of deficits as a society because we don't know what to do with these extreme emotions. And like you said, what do they tell us? What are they there for? Exactly. And I think with even just a little bit of education around emotions and again, those, the function of emotions, there'd be so much less suffering in the world better. There'd be a lot less broken relationships and just more feelings of attunement and connectedness with our kids, with our spouses, with our friends, our community. And the effects of that are just, again, have a residual resounding like ripple effect into the rest of the world. And that's exactly why I started looking at attachment and how children received what they needed to be securely attached, because I started to see that if we had that to begin with, like you said, there wouldn't be as many broken relationships, gang activity, wars, disputes, all of the different addictions that stem out of that. So I wanted to ask you, can you give me a broad definition of childhood emotional neglect? Yes. So childhood emotional neglect could basically be wrapped up in one sentence. And it's basically saying that our parents or primary caregiver were not able to give us and meet our emotional needs sufficiently or to the extent that we needed it. Okay. So that doesn't mean necessarily that they didn't want to, but they couldn't do it some reason and it could be possibly their own pain is that what you're saying or their own their own upbringing exactly a lot of the stuff that especially when I work with parents is they are so wanting to connect and attune to their own children it's just really hard to do that because there's actual concrete steps in order to facilitate attunement and connection but because they never received that it's an absence of that the lack of those concrete visual cues, vocal vocalizations that they are not then able to repeat for their own kids. And a lot of times that is because of trauma. And even if you don't have a trauma background, like there's no, let's say there's no uh, history of sexual abuse or physical abuse or any even verbal abuse, you can still experience childhood emotional neglect. Because again, it's the absence of having someone say, you know what, you are having a really hard time right now. You're really angry. And that makes sense to feel that way. Even that sort of validation is missing in even homes that are pretty loving and learning more about validation, what that actually sounds and how to actually sit with someone in their emotion and support them through it without trying to question that their emotions or prevent them even from feeling this big feeling because we ourselves maybe have a difficult time tolerating our own big feelings. So it's, it's really about rewiring our brain to tolerate, first of all, our own emotions so that we can better than tolerate the emotions of our kids and those around us. Right. And this was a trend and is a trend that I see in schools. And that is one of my passions is that we often don't realize as adults that children are triggering us. So we are seeing a child that is crying for their mom. 
And I, I, for instance, I had the same reaction. I didn't understand like, why is that such a big deal when, you know, my kindergartners are always crying for mommy and people would be like, that's not very sweet. But the thing is that I was like, they know that I'm safe. They know that. So we started to do things like grownups always come back. Why do grownups come back? Because they want to. They're going to come back because they want to. And then also just validating. I know it's hard. I, I remember. And I realized that was actually activating the trauma of ambivalence with my own mother, that sometimes she would come when I cried and sometimes she wouldn't. And that was actually being, uh, cur- I, basically, I had to be curious about what my reaction was to an extreme emotion of a child. And then recognize that I don't have to necessarily allow my feelings towards that to transfer to the child that I'm trying to help. Oh, I love that. It sounds like you've had you, especially being in a profession that you are working with these kindergartners, you experience this on the daily, probably every minute even of experiencing the kids' emotions and having them act out their attachment needs and attachment styles with you in the classroom as you're trying to, you know, teach them things and get them to sit in their desks and stuff. So, I mean, what a great privilege and learning experience that must have been for you in kind of reflecting on how your own reactions are to them. That's so powerful. Thank you. You know, and I think, I guess my first, uh, I think would be to be able to say to people, just be curious, just be curious about why all of a sudden you're super, super angry and you don't know why, or you feel um, abandoned all of a sudden for no reason, but there is a reason it's actually triggering our implicit memory. Maybe, a feeling that a room gives you or something that a person says or does, or even something as simple as a smell. I know that if I smell a certain cologne or a certain perfume, it makes me think of someone, right? Or a, or a song. And so those things are powerful to us. And sometimes we don't even remember why we feel that way, but it's being curious about our emotions. But if we've been told all our lives that emotions are not okay, then that's super confusing to us. And it ends up out on other people. Exactly. And you are so right about how we as young, um, how we as young people are constantly collecting these experiences in our bodies through our implicit memories. We are, uh, when, right when we're born, our emotion brain is constantly recording our experiences way before we're even able to utter our first word and they stored, they're stored in our bodies. So it's a felt experience and that felt experience can really activate and create a trigger when there's anything that resembles feeling rejected or small or unimportant. Anything that can resemble that sort of situation or scenario can really make your emotion body respond in a way uh, that kind of sets you into that fight, flight, or freeze response or fawning response. And it's one of those things that we want to be mindful of. And when we work, when I work with these amazing clients of mine who are able to share their stories with me, it's about those are really powerful memories and that they're locked in kind of this part of the brain that actually doesn't necessarily change as you get older, because that's how trauma works. No new information is able to infiltrate all this neural network that is surrounding this these particular memories. 
So new thoughts like, oh, I'm older now, I can actually lead the conversation without risking my own physical health here. Whereas when I was five and I was feeling scared or frightened, I can't just leave and say, okay, you know what? I'm going to get my own place. See you later. <laughs> I'm out of here. That's not an option because we're so highly dependent on, upon our caregivers for survival. But even though you may be an adult now and realize, yes, I have, I'm older now. I have more information. I have more agency in my life. If we are triggered, we can't access that new information to add to then act upon it. Absolutely. So what do you believe are some of, we talked a little bit about it, but what are the true misconceptions about childhood emotional neglect as a whole? Misconceptions is that it can only happen in homes. What we had started saying before, it can only happen in homes where there's actual visible, audible neglect. And that is just simply false. It can also happen in homes where you are really connected with your parents and would describe your childhood as being pretty nice, pretty good, lovely even. And the other thing is that I don't think we can underestimate the importance of emotional attunement and connection and giving and explicitly stating these things like, hey, whatever you're feeling, it's okay to feel. It's okay to feel angry. It's okay to feel worried. It's okay to feel happy. And if we don't explicitly say these things, these truths about emotions, kids will automatically learn a different truth, meaning, oh, it's not okay to feel anxious. It's not okay to feel angry because every time I do, I get sent to my room or I get yelled at, or I feel even more disconnected because of the response that I'm getting from my caregiver or my, or whoever it is. Being able to under uh, unravel, if you will, a lot of the myths, meaning like there are no good or bad emotions. They're just informants. They're primarily there to give you information about who you are, what you want, what you need, so that you can make decisions that reflect you versus always deferring to what someone else wants or needs. And they are essentially what enables you to live a life of authenticity and intention. I love that. Good job. That was beautiful. And I really believe that I have learned that my emotions and my, the feelings that I, that come up in my body that I'm curious about really will lead me to healing. So those things that keep coming back, those things that we keep replaying in our brain, things we cannot get over, they are actually a gift because they're showing us, Hey, you need to take care of this over here. But we get really good at ignoring those and pretending they're not there or saying, like you said, like dismissing them and saying, or that's in the past. I hear that with a lot. Like what happened when I was a child is not influencing me now. But if you look at people, I, I work in a school, so I work with a lot of women. So I, I think about, and it's not just women or men, but if people are under stress, watch their behavior. Or if people are upset or worried, watch their behavior because we turn into children. That's why we get so crazy when we're angry or I just, I watch behavior and I can instantly see them almost as a five-year-old and how they're trying to cope because our brain is really trying to survive. We're wired for the negative because that's our way of surviving and living. Our brain is there to help us survive. So if these strategies helped us as children, then we're going to activate those because they've helped in the past. Like you said, that there's a neural network in our brain that says, 
this is the way we drive the car. And we have to actually go back and rewire the brain through that attachment and attunement process of sitting with somebody like yourself that is going to hold that space for us and tell us, it's okay for you to be pissed off about that. That was not okay for that to happen to you. And just validating it. I think validation is major for healing. At least it was in my in my own recovery of just my counselor saying, yeah, that wasn't okay. <laughs> I, you raise a good point with just having someone be able to tell you some of these things like, nope, that's not okay. That's crossing a boundary. That wasn't okay to be treated that way because you don't hear that from other people. We tend to, there's this idea that all people are doing the best they can. And to some degree, I think that can be accurate, but some people don't. (laughs) And I think that's, it's a hard truth that we have to also allow to be true so that we can start healing from some of this stuff. It's yes, they may have done the best that they could with what they knew with what they had at the time. It doesn't mean that it didn't negatively affect us. And it's okay to say that. And sometimes we just need that permission to say, oh yeah, this is what happened to me. And it wasn't okay, but because we're, as you very well know, we see yourself that we are so hardwired to protect and remain loyal to whoever our caregiver is, regardless of how they actually treat us. It's really hard to even start that process of naming what it was that happened, regardless of intent, but being able to name that and start then to feel what may have been a more adaptive response and then heal from that. So I think there's so uh, many mixed messages about emotions, even starting with that one that certain emotions are bad or wrong. If we as children, little kids are very concrete thinkers. You very well know that with all of your experience. When we are, we learn from our caregivers that certain emotions are good or bad. If we start to feel the bad emotions, right? Like anxiety or sadness or worry or anger, right? Those are the ones that society kind of names, unfortunately, as being bad. We can't then help but feel bad people as ourselves then whenever we feel those emotions. So then we can't tolerate feeling bad. Kids can't tolerate feeling bad. Kids cannot also tolerate feeling like their parents disapprove of them. So of course, the natural answer to that is to hide these feelings and not even see that these feelings exist in our body. We compartmentalize. And then it becomes even more um, supported by society to say, oh, look at you, are not having these big emotional outbursts. You're just doing your thing and staying focused on the tasks that you need to be doing from a developmental standpoint. So you must be doing really well when inside they're just compartmentalizing, they're dissociating from themselves, they're disconnecting and rejecting the very core of who they are just for the sake of being able to survive that family of origin system first, and then survive how society thinks healthy adulting looks like. But in that process, unfortunately, we start to learn that certain emotions are just really intolerable and that we are powerless to do anything about them. So then it creates even more that cycle of shame and guilt and feeling like, oh, this is a bad emotion. I'm a bad person for feeling this way. I must hide these bad emotions. And it's just a really vicious cycle of false beliefs re- regarding emotional development. And I want to really, I forgot to mention this under like the previous question you had about some of the thing, characteristics of CEN. I want to emphasize that a lot of people who have had CEN 
don't know it. <laughs> they really don't because it's not like they can pinpoint it. It's, it sometimes it's, there's the absence of concrete things that have happened. Therefore, you can't form memories on something that has not happened to you. And I also want to emphasize that it's still traumatic. Trauma is any can be defined as anything that the system cannot handle at that time. And I want to be clear to say, as and you already know this, given all of your experience, that kids cannot, can absolutely not handle the idea that their parent does not love them or care about them or even like them. That's an intolerable thing for kids to experience. So it is considered traumatic. I think that we have such a misconception about trauma. And Peter Levine has a, a quote that says that trauma is really one of the most unmis. It's just so misunderstood. It's one of the things that we don't talk about. And it's really the thing that's destroying us, as well as shame and guilt and regret. And, and I, I love the quote that says that shame is a lie that someone else told you about yourself, that you, that it was not okay for you to have that outburst. And I think we have to be super careful when we're working with young children. Like you said, that we're not making it a star system where it's, you didn't have any outbursts today. Now there is a difference. And I tell my kids this, I say, I don't teach babies and I don't teach jerks. So the world does not need more jerks. And so there are jerky ways. And so we go back to, to Mr. Rogers, where he said, what do you do with the mad that you feel when you feel so mad, you could bite. Now biting is not okay, period. We don't bite each other. Okay, but it is okay to be angry. So what should we do? So then we come up with options. And and that's why I'm um, passionate about showing his work and talking about big emotions, because if we don't start now, it's never going to happen. People aren't going to take the time when you're 16 years old and sit you down and say, let's talk about your extreme emotions, unless they've been put there because their parents say they're out of control. But why do we have to wait until somebody is way older to say, that is not okay. So it's, but it's hard because I, we were talking before we started and I was explaining that even as a mother, I did not have the resources. I didn't know what I was missing, but I knew there was something. And so for a long time, I thought it was just depression. Then I got medicated for depression and it still wasn't there. What is it that's stopping me from really bonding and connecting to my own children? I could do that with other people's children, probably because it they weren't mine, but I knew the responsibility I had to raise two little boys into capable adults. And so it really shows up, I think, a lot of times when we become parents or caregivers. Would you agree? Yes, I wholeheartedly agree with that statement. Yeah, I just, I think that when we really recognize that it's okay to feel as though we don't have the tools that we need. And also recognizing, like you said, it's a ripple effect. So if my parents didn't have what they needed, they cannot give me what they do not have. It's not okay that I'm injured by that, but it still is what it was as far as they are broken children walking around in adult bodies. So it has to eventually stop with me. And that's what I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to be the person that stops this intergenerational cycle of X, Y, and Z, whatever those things were, so that I'm going to be the person that tries not to rage at my children when I'm upset. I'm going to try to be the person that doesn't get in my car and drive away 
when I'm angry, because that as a little girl made me feel like, are you going to come back? So it's trying to rewire myself and my programming. But like you said, it's hard. It's deep. So it takes a lot of intentional practice. So what would you do for someone like me to come into you when I come into your practice and I say, I'm really struggling. I, I, I don't know what's going on. And you recognize that there is some childhood emotional neglect or CEN going on. How do you start treating that? What are your ways of doing that? Great question. And it sounds like you've come so far in your own journey and self-reflection. That's incredible to hear your story. So thank you for sharing that with me a little bit before we started this recording. So when I work with people such as yourself or people who are very similar, it's really about seeing them expanding the perspective of themselves to include all the things that have happened and all the things that didn't happen. What didn't happen to you is just as important as what did happen because it still affects us because anything that didn't happen to us, our brain will automatically fill in those gaps because it's trying to make sense of something and will always try to fill information that's empty spaces with some sort of reasoning, some sort of rationale. And so it's part of the talking about and exploring a lot of those family of origin relationship dynamics and early childhood experiences. And those memories are very powerful. If I ask a question, did you, were you ever raised in, did your parents ever validate your feelings or teach you actually adaptive coping skills when you were feeling big emotions? And if they say, I don't really remember, then chances are it didn't happen or it definitely didn't happen to the extent that you needed it to. And when we talk about healthy emotional development, it has to be repetitive. It has to be consistent over years. Like I always say, it's way easier to raise a healthy, emotionally, emotionally healthy child than it is to heal an emotionally broken adult. It's also way cheaper because therapy, let's be honest, therapy is not cheap. It's expensive in terms of time and energy and resources. And it also takes a toll on relationships. So it's part of this is about normalizing emotions, understanding them from a human perspective and really working to help parents be more human. A lot of times if people have had abuse in their past, they actually go to the other extreme and try to shut down their emotions and they don't experience, they try to not have those big emotions in front of their kids. And they say, oh, I'm not going to show these, my own big emotions in front of my kids. And what happens then is that we set so much pressure on ourselves to not have big emotions. And I'm sorry, when you're a parent, you're going to have big emotions a lot. And so when we limit ourselves and put all this pressure to basically not be human, because humans are emotional beings at heart, we end up then exploding more often. Because not only do we have the pressure of parenting, that parenting just naturally brings, we also have the added pressure that's also very unrealistic and unattainable, frankly, to not show our emotions. So it does increase our own irritability around our kids, our own inability to connect and actually pay attention to what they're doing so that we can respond more appropriately. And it just does lead to more outbursts in front of the kids. And that can then set even more often that cycle of shame and guilt further separating you from your child. So part of this is how can we welcome emotions and not question them for ourselves? I think the really cool thing about the work I do though, a lot of parents are like, okay, how, 
or even parents who are thinking about kids, but they're worried about, I have so much baggage. I don't want to carry this into my own parenting of my own kids down the road. And I say just the fact that you're even considering that means you are going to be a fantastic parent because you understand that the parent really has a strong impact on how their child develops. That is fantastic that you realize that connection. And I can help with help with getting you to a place where you can do things differently, not just wish things are different, but actually do things differently so that you don't inadvertently repeat some of the things that happened in your own childhood. So this is a lot of psychoeducation. I think that's one thing that's really different from a therapist who specializes in, in CEN, such as myself, and then like your normal therapy. I do a lot of psychoeducation tr- talking about why do we have emotions? I think there's, I do a pyramid often of the function of emotions. The bottom section is su- safety and survival. The next one that emotions do for us in terms of function is that they are, enable us to identify our wants, needs, likes, dislikes, and identify our natural strengths. Once we're able to identify our wants and our needs, guess what? We can do the third level of the function of emotions, which is we can communicate and interact and show up in relationships. We can say, oh, I like this food. Oh, I love playing volleyball. How do I know that? Because my emotions tell me this. And I can then be interact and show up in these relationships. I can communicate and I can also make decisions. Emotions are critical in our ability to make decisions, because if I know what I want, I can make a decision better and quicker. If I don't know what I want, I'm going to be vacillating back and forth and wasting a lot of energy trying to figure out what I should do, because it's oftentimes based on what other people think we should do or what we think we need to be or do for other people. The fourth thing that emotions do for us that I I like to tell people is that they enable us to set boundaries and be assertive. Now, think about how helpful boundaries are in relationships and assertiveness is. You can identify and express to your partner, hey, you know what? When I get done with work, I just need 15 minutes to decompress before I engage in conversation with you. Or I need some self-care time. I've been around the kids nonstop for 10 months straight. I just need an hour, two hours to just do my own thing unrelated to the kids, right? But if I don't know that about myself, I'm not going to ask for that. I'm not going to set boundaries to protect my time. The last thing that emotions do for us that is critical is when we have boundaries, it automatically inherently means that there's something worthy to protect. Because if you think about, we only set up protections around things that are important. And our cell phones are a really great example of this. Think of all the things that we do to protect this little inanimate device. Oh my gosh, we we don't leave home without it. We buy cell phone cases. We buy cell phone protector glass things. We buy cell phone insurance plans. But we do that because they have value and they have worth to us. The same thing applies when we set boundaries and protections around ourselves. It protects us. It inherently means that we have self-worth and value. It helps our self-esteem. So essentially the top pyramid is being able to actualize Maslow's hierarchy of need. We can show up, we can be authentic, we can live life intentionally and have reflect, have life reflect us versus us trying to fit in with every single thing that everyone else wants us to be. So 
that is part of what I educate people on when it comes to function of emotions. And stop me if this is getting to be too long here. But the next thing I do is really work on how this has impacted them in their current situation, current life. And then the beauty of the work is that you don't have to be perfect to be a great attuned parent. In fact, it's even better if you can do the work of developing connection with your own emotions and responding to them in a, from a more pro-healthy emotional standpoint. It's great if you can do that alongside your kids. That is doable and it's great practice. So if they can see you saying, and this happens with my own son too, he sees me mad and I have a temper. <laughs> I am Korean and I'm hot-blooded and oh my gosh, my temper can flare in less than five seconds. But if, and it's okay. If the fact that I have anger is not a problem. Now, of course, if I don't handle it appropriately, that can be problematic. And at the same time, sometimes it happens. Sometimes I do lose my cool. That's okay. As long as I work on repairing and reconnecting with my kid. And also in those moments when I'm starting to get frustrated, it's okay to say, hey, mommy's feeling really frustrated right now. And I'm going to take a few deep breaths. Would you like to even do that with me? That helps them seeing you being human and human with emotions and human with emotions and coping with them in the moment helps them to also do the same thing. It gives them permission to feel their big feelings. It also sees, coaches them, models for them what to do with them in the time that they need to do them. So they not only know what coping skills are good or effective, they also know when they can use and implement a coping skill because coping skills are only effective if we use them at certain times. So I think it's really about encouraging parents to step into their humanness and welcome all those emotions, experience them in front of their kids, do the work individually too with connecting with those emotions and increasing their tolerance to feel certain emotions in their body because that's essentially what emotional coping is. But you can do this work right next to your kids. And it's a great thing for them to be able to witness and see in you because as you very well know with your own two kids and then all the kids that you've worked with in your kindergarten rooms, they will do what they see, not necessarily what you tell them. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I, I was thinking about, there are times where last year I was super frustrated with one of my kids. And when we were sitting down in a community circle, I had him sit beside me and we have a lion that we pass from Generation Mindful, and you can pull out the colors for the emotions. And so we say, I'm feeling, and then they fill in the emotion because, and so they also learned that they can have even two emotions at the same time. They knew that I was frustrated. And I said, you know what, instead of going first, I need to go last because I'm super frustrated about what just happened. When I will say, I love, let's say, harder. Okay. And Carter's sitting beside me and he knows I'm frustrated, but that doesn't mean I don't love Carter, but I'm still frustrated about what happened. So I need to take a little bit of time. And I was still touching him, making sure that he knew that he, and also reminding my children and saying to him every day, you cannot lose my love. You can, I can be frustrated with your behavior or not like your behavior, but that doesn't mean I won't like you. But by the time we got about halfway through, they were watching my body and they were watching um, my emotions and they could feel it. And by the time it got to my little Kaylee, she said, ah, you're not mad anymore, are you? And I said, no, I feel like I've calmed down. So they could actually sense that 
I had turned that corner and I said, I'm no longer mad or I'm no longer frustrated. So they saw that I took the time, but I did it right in front of them. And I think that is so important that we recognize it's so imperative that we act like human beings in front of children. Because I've also had friends that have grown up where they never saw their parents argue. And so when they had an argument in their marriage, they were like, what is this? Oh my gosh, we must be heading towards divorce. And so it's important for children to see when we're angry. It's important for our children to see that we have conflict. It's important for our children to see that we're sad. We don't have to hide our tears from our children. It does scare them, So we do need to reassure them that we are okay and that they don't have to make it better, but that they make us feel good for being there to be a comfort. So not making children be responsible for whatever emotions we're feeling, but allowing them to see that we have emotions is vital to their emotional development and, and seeing, like you said, us working through it in a healthy way and It's okay if we have to get those skills through work because it's work and every day it's work. But as I look back on my own journey with my children, who are now what I would call man child, man children, 20 and 18, and of course they know it all at this point. They have said to me when I have extreme regret over being a toxic, unhealed mother, but mom, you got better. Mom, you went and you did what you needed to do to be better for us. And they are so forgiving. So it's about also asking for forgiveness when we fail. They need to see that adults ask children for forgiveness. They repair the rupture they create. So those ruptures, like you said, even though someone else might say that's not a big deal, a rupture becomes trauma. And so that is the thing I've learned the most is even if you're not sure if it was traumatic, repair it. Make sure that child knows that you love them and that you are sorry if it hurt them or confused them or scared them, whatever it might be, but just repair it anyway. That's my philosophy is just go back and make sure. It's not a big thing, but just a, a reminder, repair it. So much easier, like you said, to repair a child than it is to repair a broken adult that's had multiple experiences that have confirmed that they're not worthy or that they're not lovable or that people are going to leave because our brain looks for what it knows. Exactly. And you are so right on so many points there of just being able explicit with what you are saying and making those repair attempts, making it very concrete and saying explicitly, it's okay to feel what you're feeling. It's okay that mommy gets upset or daddy gets upset or whoever, and it's not your faults and it's not your responsibility to make it better. I think it's awesome because if we don't explicitly say those things to our kids, they automatically just learn the other message that we don't want them to learn that we, they automatically learn that, oh, I am responsible. I, I need to fix it. I need to like not be a child anymore and step up into this role that I am not, that is not a good fit for me. And that's not healthy for me to step into and try to make it better. And that's not okay. That leads to a whole slew of problems down the road. But I I love how you are really owning that for yourself. And is what a beautiful story that your own boys, yes, man kids are able to say you change. And even they can see that, they can feel it, they can recognize it. They've seen your whole, the effort that you put into, to loving them and to being a parent that you want to be for them. And that's incredible, I think. 
as you've done all of this work, I'd like you to think about your favorite resources, not ones obviously that a therapist would read necessarily a therapist circle, but what are some books or resources that you feel would be super beneficial to the people that are listening? If they're like, mm, that might be me or, oh, that's totally me. Where are some places that they, or books that they, that you could recommend or any of that kind of stuff? Can you think of any of those? I have a lot of resources on my website, but I do, so I can't recall all of them off the top of my head. However, a few really do stick out. I do think a couple of things. The work of Dr. Janice Webb, W-E-B-B, fantastic resource. She is the one that coined the phrase childhood emotional neglect. She has two books. The first one that people have often read before they even come to me for therapy is called Running on Empty. Fantastic read. I think anyone could benefit from reading that story. I also think it's helpful to read a little bit more about trauma and also EMDR because we have to understand that CEN actually is trauma, even though you may not realize that you've experienced trauma. It's maybe it's more so the small T type of trauma that you've experienced, but nonetheless, it's still trauma. So those are a couple of resources I highly recommend to start reading and diving into. I actually was expecting you to say Webb's book. And she's actually published through Morgan James, who is going to be publishing my book. So I'm excited that I'll be in the same publishing community that she's in. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That's so exciting. Yeah. If our listeners want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you on social media and your website? Yes. So if you are interested in learning more, I have a website. It's www.connecttherapymn.com, connecttherapyminnesota.com. I'm also on Instagram. Uh, My handle is connecttherapymn. And I also have a Facebook group. It's free. It's called Emotions 101, What We Didn't Learn in School. And that's free. It's on Facebook. You can find if you are interested in joining. It provides some resources, some skills, some tangible skills and tips on how to navigate emotions, navigate relationships from a healthier perspective. And so those are my primary resources um, or ways of connecting with me. That is fantastic. Katie, thank you so much. I look forward to having you back. As she said, she has lots of places where you can connect with her. And I love her Instagram. I told her it's just beautiful. Like she, she gives some great quick tools, things to know, and just reassurance. I think that's the biggest thing is that you can overcome this. You can, even if there's going to be residuals that we, like I said, that come back, but the thing is that it is possible. And I think Katie would say so as well, that it is possible for you to engage this work and be successful. I'm living proof of that and just be blessed, be encouraged. And we look forward to talking to you next time. Take care. Thanks for joining us this week on Simple and Deep. Make sure that you visit my website, wisteriaedwards.com, where you can subscribe to receive updates about my upcoming book, Waiting for Mr. Rogers. And while you're at it, if you found value in the show, I'd appreciate you giving it a rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to it, or simply tell a friend about the show too. That would be a great help. Till next time, take care.